Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So, I mean, looking at the sheerly abysmal turnout that comes from these Democratic primaries, you know, we realize like 780,000 people live in my district in New York City. And the prior year, only 18,000 people voted in the primary. So I'm thinking, man, like, let's go find 20,000 voters and win this race. Uh, uh, and it's uh, like yeah. so outside the box. And, and I, you know, I talked to quote unquote experts and consultants and they said, no, 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 you don't understand. There's only 18,000 triple prime voters here. These are the only people who consistently vote in these primaries. You're not going to get people who are predisposed to not voting in a primary to vote. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, these people don't vote because you've never tried to get them engaged. And so we came at that race from this fundamental idea that every single person was worth campaigning to, that nobody was uh, prohibitively expensive to campaign to or, you know, or not unimportant. And that's how we did that race. And it was inspired, it was exciting. To your point, we motivated thousands and thousands of new, non-traditional voters to vote in our primary. This week on Forward, New York congressional candidate, business school professor, small business owner operator, Siraj Patel joins us. Siraj, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew. So Siraj, wow, have you had a journey and you and I have known each other for years. I first met you in 2018 when you were running for Congress and you lost that race to the incumbent very, very narrowly. Uh, like what was that vote count in 2018? I think it was, uh, we, you know, we lost it 57 to 43, but it was a lot closer than anyone ever gave us credit for uh, going into that race. And then you came back and ran again, and the, the second time it was like a razor thin margin that actually could have gone the other way if they'd included a bunch of votes that, for whatever reason, weren't counted. Totally. It's fundamentally the reason I'm in this race again, which is that, you know, we've got liberal democracy under attack across the world, frankly. Um, and even right here at home, you've got the old tools of gerrymandering, voter suppression, things like that. Two years ago, we lost by 2,700 votes um, in the first sort of election that was happening during the coronavirus crisis. And New York was woefully unprepared to manage a vote-by-mail election, which is what it largely turned into. So 20% of the ballots that came in by mail were never, ever opened, Andrew, in our race. Um, one in five people never had um, their vote counted. Uh, a lot of those votes came from areas we do really well in. A lot of those were due to post office failing to postmark ballots or the design of the ballots, you know, omitted sort of a, the right spot for a signature that you needed. It was just, it was a mess. It was a mess. Um, and I'm an attorney, you know, I've talked about gerrymandering, voter suppression, my whole career. Um, and, you know, politics is the only game where the players are the umpires. They get to determine... Uh, you know, the time, place, and manner of their re-elections. And I always say, like, the one thing that these people seem to be very effective at uh, in uh, the incumbents is uh, perpetuating their incumbency, you know? Yeah, so uh, I want to retrace our steps a, a little bit, because you and I share a fair amount in common. Uh, I was uh, excited about Barack Obama when he became president. Probably doesn't surprise anybody. A and you were so excited that you worked on his, his campaigns. Is that right? That's right. I was in law school in 2007 when I just looked at this campaign and I said, here's another sk he's a skinny kid with a funny name. 
you know, running for president, uh, affirms sort of the idea that people like you and me have a place in politics, have a place in America. Parents, my parents moved here from India in the 60s. Um, and and I, was, I was so into it. And one of the things that I fundamentally loved was this idea that you can disagree without being disagreeable. That, uh, the, you know, that there wasn't this idea that people in the country are irredeemable. We were campaigning to everyone, trying to conv you know, convince and persuade them to come in. I feel like that some of that's been lost a bit in the last couple of cycles, that you know, it's a very us versus them world. Anyway, so I left law school, I joined the Obama campaign, became an advanced staffer, um, much to my uh, Indian parents' dismay of leaving school <laughs> for a second. Wow. But it was just one of the most incredible experiences of my life, yeah. Obama won that 08 campaign, uh, was extraordinarily uplifting. Remember, um, I wasn't as involved as, uh, as you were, but you must have seen all these rapturous crowds, uh, people investing a lot of their hopes and dreams. Um, I, I remember celebrating when uh, Obama won in 08, and his opponents that time were John McCain and Sarah Palin, and so it really did seem like there was a very significant gulf, particularly where, where Sarah Palin was concerned. So uh, he wins, and then do you consider joining the administration, though? I guess there must have been a multitude of people who'd worked on the campaign who were thinking about it. Totally, and I also you know, <laughs> wanted to come back and finish law school. So uh, I was back at NYU, finished law school in 2010, at which point you know, my family moved here, like I said, in the late 60s. My dad was an MTA engineer. Uh, we ran a little bodega. Um, I remember, you know, sort of working with my family, you know, sweeping that bodega floor. Growing up, then we started a small business. Uh, lived in a motel that we that we had purchased um, as a family, and did the laundry and the housekeeping and filling the vending machines. And grew up working our family business. And 2010 rolled around, and uh, we had the financial crisis hit, and really upended everything that we had spent a lifetime building together. So faced a few foreclosures, uh, bankruptcies, and so I kind of got very much like so many people in our generation, in my generation, completely rerouted uh, in this once-in-a-lifetime sort of uh, great recession situation. So I went to, you know, help come out of the foreclosures with my family and made sure that, um, you know, we finished our projects, that our employees uh, landed on their feet, that we made sure that uh, every contractor and everyone was paid in full. But it took a long time, man. It took a long time to dig out of that. And I think... Frankly, we need people to be running for office who've gone through that kind of shit. Yeah, I, I love small business owner operators. I was one here in New York. Uh, and there, there's just something very pragmatic and reasonable about that background because, you know, you, you can't be ideological about, you know, like providing a service to people, uh, the way you treat people. You're just trying to put people in a position to succeed. Um, so you volunteered again on the Obama campaign in 2012. And when did you think, hey, I might run myself? So actually, I worked uh, on the 2012 campaign full time um, again. As wow, a that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I went back and did that again. And then I also worked for the White House doing advance work, you know, traveling around uh, for, you know, I went to India uh, on behalf of the White House for a few months, uh, for a month. It wasn't until 2016. Uh, look, I never, frankly, you know, imagined running for office in New York City, frankly, first off. Um, and for Congress, but 2016 was the big pivot point. Um, I was, you know, helping out on the Hillary campaign. I was a consultant towards the end of it. The morning after Trump won, I was working at the Javits Center event, which was supposed to be our victory party. It ended up becoming feeling like a funeral, frankly. A group of us decided, you know, there were like junior Obama staffers decided, let's have a, let's get an organization together and start getting people under one roof and thinking about where do we go next from here. So we started this organization called The Arena. Um, to get uh, new people to run for office, to enter the political arena. And it was incredible. I mean, if you remember that moment. How many people were part of that? So we had summits across the country, and thousands of people showed up over, over the course of the few months that we ran them, a uh, year that we ran them. So Nashville, Tennessee, three, a month after the election in December of 2020, uh, 2016, um, we had a summit. Here's what I thought was uh, incredible. 700 people showed up from around the country on their own dime, to, to you know, that is a lot, yeah. sit under one roof and talk about you know, healing and where do we go forward. What I thought was most fascinating is I was taking the intake forms is half those people had never been involved in politics. They were from tech, they were from digital, they were from marketing, they were from creatives. And we said, look, man, we've got lapped by Republicans in terms of how we communicate to people in the digital sphere and all that. And so we started helping new candidates run for office uh, 
you know, people like Lauren Underwood, people like Andy Kim, people who normally the Democratic Party, you know, main, you know, would just look over and say, oh, Andy Kim, you're in southern New Jersey. It's a white area. We're going to find some former county supervisor and run him. You know, and Andy Kim is like, we said, look, let's envelop this guy with cutting edge, you know, support and technology and sort of break through and, and start campaigning to all people, not just people we determine are predisposed to voting. So we did that, and, 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 and I realized my own home here in New York City has been represented by a person who's been in office now for 30 years, so out of touch. And, you know, frankly, in my district, uh, which is the eastern half of Manhattan, uh, a little bit of Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and, and a little bit of northern uh, or western Queens, leads in almost every facet of American life, media, entertainment, technology, research, development, uh, medicine. And in Congress had sort of a backbencher for a long time um, who isn't pushing forth uh, on, on envelope ideas and, um, and things like that. And so I said, look, someone should, someone should challenge these people. Competition brings out the best in all of us. I fundamentally believe it. Yeah, it's very unusual to challenge an incumbent and actually have a shot. Uh, you know, that's highly unusual. I mean, the re-election rate for incumbents is something like 94%. Yeah. Um, so that was a very brash move. Uh, and despite your being associated with democratic politics generally, uh, it, it seems like you are cast as very much an interloper outsider. Is that fair to say? Yeah, incredibly disingenuous sort of uh, branding of someone who has spent their entire life working on democratic campaigns and causes, um, I consider myself, you know, an Obama Democrat, a liberal Democrat. This idea that, like, if you have the temerity to challenge an incumbent, um, that you're not playing for the team, that's absurd. I was thinking, look, we can't possibly be telling people across the country from our coastal, you know, from New York and California that, hey, Ohio voter, you're voting against your self-interest. Like, nobody wants to hear that, first off. You, you sound like a condescending uh, jerk. Secondly, you got to walk the walk. If your own Congress people haven't, within you know New York, uh, you know safe seats have delivered anything for decades, um, and you have fundamental issues with the way that they've campaigned and who they campaign to and who they're accountable to, you have an obligation to also you know keep these people honest and run against them. And that's what I did in 2016. 6.8% of people voted yeah. in the primary. And you're like, you know, if you wonder why why our representatives are so sort of like narrow and, and, and you know, they only campaign to one small group. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device, you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. One of the, the reasons why um, I, I'm excited to talk to you is the experience you've had running against what I'm going to characterize as something of a democratic machine. And people would look at you and again being like, well, isn't he also a Democrat? Yeah, yeah. And like the machine is, 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 a, a, is, a, is real. It's real. 
just this week, fast forwarding to now, the, the art of drawing lines is gerrymandering. And most people think about gerrymandering from a partisan uh, perspective. Yeah, so, so a little bit of background here. A New York court threw out the redistricting lines that were drawn by New York Democrats. And this judge was appointed by Democrats. New York is essentially a one-party state. Uh, and so this, this really was um, kind of surprising to a lot of people because it's like, hey, even this judge thought that this process was problematic where they, they drew the lines, they didn't consult with anyone, they just said, hey, here are the lines. And so as we're having this conversation, no one knows what the lines are going to be. Uh, like the judge said, look, like you have to do it again. Uh, and so now they're taking another shot at it. Um, but that there, there's a chance that the dates shift. They're like, no, no, we have to get these primaries done in June. But um, for someone like you, you're not even sure what your lines are. Is that right? That's correct. So they punted our election to August 23rd. We do. So know they that. did move it back. Yeah, my election now will be August 23rd instead of June 29th. So that's one thing, which I'm, uh, you know, it gives us more time to make our case, which is great. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, I don't know what the lines are going to be. But you know, I had a law professor that always said, like, call me old-fashioned, but I think voters should choose their politicians and not the other way around. Drawing, excising surgically. Um, you know, populations that you don't think you can get to support you uh, isn't good for democracy. In November, we learned that my opponent, Representative Maloney, according to the New York Times, you know, angled the shed thousands of young and Latino voters out of her district. So when I ran two years ago, almost every precinct that I won, curiously, was surgically excised uh, out of the district this year. Now, that map has been tossed. We'll see what the court-appointed uh, master draws. Um, but the map that they replaced it with was one that, you know, you could, you didn't have to infer, it didn't have to, it didn't take much to infer what had happened. But the Times also reported it, so there's obviously source behind it. But it took communities like the Upper West Side and Chelsea and West Village and ripped them into half in order to protect the incumbent. And most people think about gerrymandering from the standpoint of partisanship. Lately. Party versus party, yeah. The most invidious types of gerrymandering for decades has been incumbency protection. That a bunch of Democrats and Republicans get in a room together and they say, hey, here's my seven people I want to save. The Republicans are like, here's my five people I want to save. And we draw districts that are like just in more and more, quote unquote, safe. It's the people's house. The House of Representatives is supposed to move with the moods. Right now, only 30 plus, 30 or so out of 435 seats are like actually competitive. Yeah, it's 90% non-competitive. It's insane. That's an incredibly bad thing for democracy. And we wonder why these people then are out of touch and why they're, in many cases, so terrified more of primaries than they are of the general election that they move to their respective corners. Well, clearly, in, in this district, uh, it's going to be non-competitive in the general. To the extent that Completely. there's any uncertainty, it's in the primary. But what makes you so interesting is that, uh, again, incumbents have a 94% success rate. It's very, very hard to successfully primary an incumbent. And the fact that you have come this close to, to beating uh, an incumbent is really, really like somewhat singular. And the fact that you're back for a third time, third time's the charm run, I commend you for because as someone who's been a candidate a couple times, I mean, it takes a lot out of you, you know, especially in your case where you come this close to winning and then you, you fall short, you know, like it, you must have very, very high levels of stamina, resilience, et cetera, et cetera. So hats off to you on that, Siraj. Yeah, thank you. To your point, by the way, that I think I, I look, I come from the come at this from the standpoint of you're right. I've been in hospitality, I've been in business. You have to work with people you disagree with. You don't have the luxury of sort of coming retreating to your corner. I am more convicted in my race now than ever before that looking at what's happening in the country, looking at you know, our failure as, as a, uh, you know, to both to, to communicate what we've accomplished, but also deliver on some of the promises. Um, we really need some massive generational change in politics. It's less ideological and more about new perspective, fresh ideas, championing innovation, championing, you know, um, private sector growth and development. A lot of stuff that seems to have been like left behind um, in terms of governance, you know, and uh, if, you know, if you think about it, we're going to have a, a pretty, you know, all signs point to a difficult midterm year for the yeah, Democratic of course. Party. Yep. And every time there's a wipeout, 1994, 2010, every time there's a wipeout, it's the people that are like in these battleground seats like the Andy Kims or the you know, Lauren Underwoods of the world 
who will be 30 to 40 years old that are you know in office, they're going to get wiped out. The people who survive are the Carolyn Maloney's of the world who have been in office for 30 years in safe seats. And you've got this increasingly, you know, a strange divide in our governance where you've got people who think, you know, oh, um, everything's fine. I'll just wait for the next cycle to be in the majority again. I, I think we've got to rebuild from the rubble that's going to come. Something a lot less, um, you know, a lot more ideas driven and, and effective and delivery driven and innovative than what we see right now, you know? Yeah, so a couple of things. I endorsed a congressional candidate who won um, um, in Michigan in 2020, and mm -hmm. she said to me uh, that someone like her will never rise to power in the party because she's in a swing district and she won't just won't be around long enough. Right. Because to get to seniority, you'd have to be there 10, 12, 20 years, and she's like, I'm not going to make it anywhere near that. Because like you said, when like the... Um, you know, when the tide turns, um, you know, she's going to be among those that, that gets wiped out. And that really stuck with me because who does then rise to seniority? People who are uh, in very safe seats on the coasts. So, so you think Nancy Pelosi, you think fo folks in New York. I mean, you know, again, uh, one party. But the, the second big theme and one, one of the reasons I think this is such an important conversation is that Democrats present themselves uh, to some extent as like the champions of democracy. It's like, oh, Republicans are sabotaging democracy um, and we, the, the Democrats, are the ones that are going to, to save it. And then you're like, wait a minute. So like then, like really it's not about Democrats versus Republicans. It's like incumbents versus anyone who wants to come in. And that, that's one of the things that I think you just described when you talk about the parties coming together, including and drawing these lines. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that there, there is a fundamental distinction in that, um, you know, Republicans use voter suppression tactics in a, in a very sort of race-based, age-based way across large swaths of the country. Agreed. You know, and that's like not a comparable. And, and this is one of the things that Democrats will argue is like, look, we're not the same as them. And I agree with that. That's right. Um, but then when you press, you're like, wait a minute. Like, it's not like you guys are necessarily pro-democracy when it comes to the way the lines are drawn, the way the primaries are set up. I mean, New York has very, very closed primaries that, that lead to uh, legislators uh, being chosen by, what did you say, 6.8%? 6.8%, yeah. I mean, we, we increased our you know millennial turnout uh, by 800% that first race, and no one expected us to do it. It went from 2% to about 16%. So, you know, and, and, and then for we, people who are watching this, I remember working with 20-something-year-olds who were very, very inspired by Siraj's campaign. That's one reason why, uh, well, you and I met, I had young people being like, hey, Siraj Patel, the future, young, dynamic, energetic, diverse, like all this stuff, like where they saw uh, the future in you. And I thought like, wow, like that would be really cool to have this 30-something-year-old uh, yeah. like, like rep representing and shaking it up a little bit, challenging the incumbent. Uh, it, it, yeah. it, it's your point. Like this is the reason that this is uh, such an important race, I think, that, you know, people should think about, care about from across the country is that you are talking about a safe democratic district. It is one I believe we have an obligation to enter, uh, you know, to, to use um, as a place to cha help change the conversation, to help introduce new and innovative policy ideas that might garner support from people in both parties. Uh, it's an 78% college educated district, making it so far from the statistical mean in the country. that, that Yeah, so, you, so people who know, 35% of the country has a college degree, so 78% is... Probably is, a few standard deviations yeah. to the right of everything. Yeah. You know, it's the most educated district in America. And this is where you have the ability to talk about your kitchen table issues in many cases are about the structure of our democracy. It is about climate change. It is about a moonshot in science and research and development and innovation, unleashing the private sector uh, to help, you know, tackle climate change and pandemics, things like that. Those are the issues that, you know, only a few districts in America, can you really make that your pitch and argument? This is one that you can, and we have an obligation from districts like this then to behave in such a manner, to push the envelope, policy envelope forward, which is why I think it's so important. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep 
lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So at this point, you are a veteran congressional candidate. You've been through it a couple times. But like, how the heck does one gear up for a congressional run? So you say that you hadn't considered running for office. Trump wins in 16. It activates you. Activated me too. I decided to run for president. Sounds like you decided to run for Congress. Um, so for those people who are listening who might have in one corner of their mind thoughts like, hey, maybe I should uh, throw my hat in the ring at, at one point. How the heck do you gear up to run? Uh, and then what does that process look like? Well, so in my instance, um, you know, it was a little unique in that I was building an organization to help get uh, non, non-traditional candidates, let's call them, uh, in, running for office, which are, you know, younger people, people of color. Uh, people with diverse backgrounds in business and academia run for office. That's what we need, uh, rather than people who have previously run for office, lower office or whatever. Um, so I was doing that and sort of enveloping and helping other campaigns launch, and therefore it gave me some ideas to what happened. Uh, and so I would encourage people to look for those resources. There are organizations like Emerge and the Arena uh, and things out there for people to run for office that can help you with those first steps. Um, but it really starts coming down to like looking at the race that you're trying to think about, thinking about, hey, is this person unsatisfactory and or is there a path to victory? Um, the fundamental answer is yes, there's always a path to victory. There are many So what did you see as your, your win number when you were evaluating that first time? So, I mean, looking at the sheerly abysmal turnout that comes from these Democratic primaries, you know, we realized like, 780,000 people live in my district in New York City. And the prior year, only 18,000 people voted in the primary. So I'm thinking, man, like, let's go find 20,000 voters and win this race. That, 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 and it's like yeah. so outside the box. And, and I, you know, I talked to quote unquote experts and consultants and they said, no, 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 you don't understand. There's only 18,000 triple prime voters here. These are the only people who consistently vote in these primaries. You're not going to get people who are predisposed to not voting in a primary to vote. And I'm like, well, you've created a vicious circle, haven't you? If you think someone's too expensive or unimportant to campaign to, that you ignore them, then they don't vote. And then you say, see, they don't vote. It's an unbelievably failed you know, customer inquiry, first off. It's like, I used to say politics is the only business that blames its customers for not buying a shitty product. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, these people don't vote because you never tried to get them engaged. And so we came at that race from this fundamental idea that every single person was worth campaigning to, that nobody was uh, prohibitively expensive to campaign to or, you know, or not unimportant. And that's how we did that race. And it was inspired. It was exciting. To your point, we motivated thousands and thousands of new non-traditional voters to vote in our primary. And what I didn't do well in that first race is uh, certainly a lot of things. And one was particularly playing the game of politics itself, you know, and campaigning to some of the people who traditionally vote, um, media, et cetera. And you learn that. You learn that the hard way. And I was talking to my parents about sort of like, you know, do I want to do that race? And they're like, God, man, when, you know, when we built our first, you know, uh, business, you know, the next the next couple of years, you think to yourself, man, I overpaid for this or I wish I did that. The failure would be not to apply those lessons to the next one, you know, and it was fundamentally um, really that's why I think our campaign two years ago, the second campaign was so much more effective 
um, with the, you know, even despite headwinds like COVID happening in the middle of it and fundraising dying because of COVID and all those kinds of things. Uh, and then obviously the failure of ballots and vote by mail and our democracy. But so, you know, coming back at it this third time, I feel like, to your point, third time's a charm. A lot of people, you know, don't run a third time, but if they did, they'd win because you are just <laughs> climbing. You know, Ro is an example, right? This is a guy who ran three times and uh, really just kept doing it until it hits. Well, it certainly does take a lot of stamina uh, and resilience and character to, to run again. Um, so when you first started looking at running, and so th th this is one of the things that, uh, I, you know, like uh, I, I know about the process that most people at least imagine. So the rule of thumb is that you need to be able to raise several hundred thousand dollars to run a credible congressional campaign. This was an expensive district, so you're probably looking at some higher number than that. I think this is a single thing that scares a lot of people off from running for Congress. It's like, who the heck can raise a few hundred thousand dollars from their personal network? Very hard. Uh, what's the the maximum contribution an, an individual can make? It's probably like twenty eight hundred. Is that right? Now it's twenty nine hundred this year. Yeah. Yeah, it's twenty nine hundred. So if you're the average person listening to this, thinking I'm going to run for Congress, you're thinking, man, how am I going to get a few hundred thousand dollars? Like, you know, I don't know a hundred people that are going to give me twenty nine hundred. If you know a hundred people that can give you twenty nine hundred, chances are you're probably already in politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's it's so true that like these races cost way too much. Um, you know, in our case. You know, we don't, to your point, have a competitive general election, so it is just the primary that help. That's helpful. In in some cases, you have to raise money to win a primary, then also raise money to win the general. And there is an incredibly, in you know, insane amount of money in politics, and frankly, outside of politics, that influences these races. So you also have that to contend with super PACs. You know, I I have uh, you know the the good fortune, frankly, of of a really strong support system of of. Uh, alumni from a university, from law school and stuff that I can tap, uh, you know, into a little bit. But also this fundamental issue of um, representation. There has never been a South Asian representative east of the Mississippi River in, think wow. about how many states there are. In New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, which has some of the highest concentration of South Asian Americans and frankly Asian Americans in the country, um, in New York at the time, there, there was not a single city councilman, state senator, assembly person, or a single of 500 statewide elected offices in New York, a single South Asian person in office. Currently now, since then, there's a city councilman and an assemblywoman. That's it. So you had a lot of thirst from this ethnic community. I hadn't really thought about how few South Asian representatives are until you said that, in part because I, I, I know Roe. Yeah, <laughs> so there's like, oh, one you know, that you know about, right. Yeah, so when I, I ran for president, my team around me was predominantly non-Asian. Um, and so they would look to me and be like, hey, like, are Asians going to get behind this campaign? And then what I said to my team was, Asians will get behind this campaign after other people get behind this campaign. <laughs> like, yeah, like, like yeah. Asians may not be first. I don't know if you had a similar experience or did they pile in early on? You know, similar experience from the standpoint of definitely had some early support, but then we had to show yeah. momentum and growth uh, for this to not just be a lark, you know. And um, certainly I'm finding now, uh, you know, more and more support from the standpoint of you came within 2,700 votes of unseating an incumbent in a very, you know, what was thought of from the outside as an impossible sort of quixotic quest. Now I'm like, see, I told you, you know, uh, you know, if we'd done this um, from the get go and, and had the resources to truly compete. I mean, I was still outspent um, by Maloney two and a half to one uh, and still only lost by twenty seven hundred votes. If I had anywhere near parity um, this cycle, we would we would crush it. And um, and we you know, we plan to, to plan to just continue growing right now. So you, and this is one of the, the experiences I wanted to download from you. So you run for Congress. Again, you're this charismatic, 34-year-old, uh, South Asian, son of immigrants, et cetera. And so you might have thought that there would be a certain group of people that would be excited about you. I mean, young people were excited about you. I know like a lot of people who are excited about you still. But it, it did not seem like the press was excited about you. And this is something that, you know, I went through my version of this. And then you're a little bit like, what's going on? There's like this caricature that gets painted. <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, look, I, this is one of the challenges, just being Asian American in America. 
there is no home team yet for you. The press um, in New York, frankly, is it's an insular place to be running for office, and that that class is is the, the a very difficult part of this. I mean, let's let's start with the caricature of just this like young, uh, you know, random person. Like one, you know, I'm 38 years old now. In almost any industry in America, that would put me in this sort of middle management, middle age level. So. It, it, you should think about, you know, in the 1950s, even the, the Congress people on average were in their late 30s, 40s and, and early 50s at latest, that it was a young person's game that it is actually, you know, one of the first things you run for. And then as you get to senator or whatever, they, they, it gets older and older. The shift has happened in the last 50 years to where we're so drilled and accustomed to thinking congressman 70, you know. And this isn't about age. When I say generational change, it's about time in Washington. It's about being in touch with the economy. Like when I said liberal democracy is under attack with misinformation, with cyber warfare, with platforms that govern sort of with algorithms are public sphere and people look at them. Even if you and I know Twitter is not real life and it's not, reporters seem to continue to believe Twitter is real life. And um, if you're gonna be running you know, the country and saying we've gotta protect liberal democracy from these attacks, You've got to at least understand those platforms. You've got to have been around in the economy and in the private sector and places like that at some point in your life. Well, I think this is one reason why you and I bonded is that uh, so I ran for president when I was approximately, let's say, 43 years old, 44 right. years old. Um, and so I thought to myself, it's like, hey, you know, this will be interesting. I'm, I'll be like the young uh, ethnic upstart candidate uh, and I thought that there would be like a certain appeal to that which there was to humans <laughs> other people um, uh, and also I'd be the first uh, Asian American man to run for president in the modern era um, so I thought okay there'd be like some people who were excited about that I, I thought in the media um, but it turns out that the media like completely not excited uh, uh, about it. And one of the jokes that they told is like I was the last non-white presidential candidate on the debate stage in L.A. Uh, and then I was joking with my team. I was like, well, we're about to find out if Asians are white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you did. And yeah. I was like, and we're not. But yeah. um, but but there, there was still like this uh, complete muteness about the fact that it's like, uh, you know, Yang's like last candidate of, of color and like, what does this mean? And, and there, there is this uh, conversation, particularly an online conversation that takes a youngish Asian male candidate and completely like expunges any sort of groundbreakingness <laughs> like about that. It's like, like yeah. that's not the groundbreakingness we need. <laughs> like, like that's not the new energy we need. We need some other form of new energy. I don't know if that seems familiar to you. It really does. I mean, look, like my, my family, like, you know, my first memory, honest to God, is we were a uh, 13 person, three, four generations of family living in a one bedroom place above this bodega we were in. We slept in a line, my great grandmother, my grandmother, my grandfather, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, me and Viral, my brother, my cousins. And and we would wake up at like five in the morning on Sundays to get the New York Times, or the, not the New York Times, but the newspaper, which back then if you got it, if you ran in bodega, you'd get it in separate sections, um, like the front page, the business page and all that. If you sorted it yourself, you could make an extra dime. Uh, you could make an extra dime selling it. And, and we did that, you know, as kids and, and as, a, as a family together. It's like, I know how this works. Dime by dime, you build a business, you build life, you build something in this country and you try to belong. And we should be celebrating those things. We should be celebrating people's success when they do or in families. And, and we shouldn't be denigrating it, uh, frankly. This is the hope we should have for everybody. And I think that's what I mean by, um, you know, we need a new generation of leaders that are pro-growth, you know, pro-science, pro-democracy, um, full stop. And there's somehow been a takeover of this idea that, that if you had some semblance of success in the, in the private sector, that we should, we should consider demonizing you in some manner. And I am damn proud of what my family has built, you know, and to allow sacrifice, leave a country. It's the American dream, really. Yeah, and leave a country and move a hemisphere and a half away to like the place where you don't even speak the language and sacrifice everything. Um, send your kids to, you know, university and all those things. And we should be happy about that and we should make sure that it's more accessible to more people rather than saying, 
this isn't the kind of change we want. <laughs> like that, that's insane to me, you know? Uh, this is the change we want. <laughs> this I mean, is the want... change we want. So how many new voters did you get in that first race? Because whenever anyone makes a plan around getting new voters, uh, like any consultant just runs the other direction. It's like, that will never work. And that's what every consultant told us, which is why we said, fine, we'll do it without consultants and do it the right way. And we, we even made a little customer messaging, a customer uh, guide, like Bible, which was like, you know, every interaction we have shouldn't be like, SOS 911. This is North Korea is about it's to the end of the world. Yeah, it's the end of the world. Please rush me. Yeah, rush me five dollars and fifty cents. You know, like our emails were newsletters. They provided information. We drew. We wrote 170 pages of original policy, novel ideas to make government work for people again. You know, it's one thing to just be like, uh, you know, campaigning on on things like you know Medicare for all, which. If it didn't get a vote, you know, and I'm supportive of universal health care and Medicare for all, but like if you're not going to, you know, if you didn't get a single vote in this Congress when we had the House, the Senate and, and the presidency, then you're being disingenuous if you're campaigning on it, um, knowing full well that that the delivery of it is probably long away. So then we're like, well, let's increase price transparency in health care. Let's make it so that the market starts to work to bring costs down so more people can afford health care. You can do those two things at the same time. So we'd write policy like that to sort of innovate in government. Um, and I think that attracted a lot of people that otherwise would be like, yeah, I'm just tuning out the, the noise. That, that's very practical and real, and I appreciate it. I wrote a piece a few weeks ago about the fact that uh, California state legislature failed to bring Medicare for all to a vote, even though they had like a super majority of Democrats. I think it's literally 75% Democrats. And the governor ran on it. And then they didn't pass it. I was like, look, guys, like if they can't pass it under those circumstances. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's this interesting thing about uh, switching gears back to gerrymandering for a second, because I think so much of what we're talking about, the counter-majoritarian impulses of our government are because, you know, the government isn't really representative. The elected government is not super representative of, of the actual populace. Um, it's It's very you know, depolarized and a very narrow set of folks who really and, pay and attention. And it's gotten overrun by various corporate interests. I mean, that's what's happened in California is that even though you have a lot of folks who ran on Medicare for all, you have very powerful lobbying interests that are like, look, guys, like, let's not totally vote on this. And then that won out because yeah. and, and that is one of the dangers of having a one party system where they control everything is that, uh, you know, that they're, they're hand in hand with uh, with folks who just want to keep things the same. So if you expect that system to deliver uh, significant change, uh, you're going to get more and more uh, frustrated and uh, yeah. I mean, look time. at look at New York City. If we paid 1.6 billion dollars a kilometer to build the Second Avenue subway line, which was like 97 years late, that's that's six times the next closest cost in the world. Paris, uh, and Paris has stronger labor and environmental regs than New York does. So, well, the fundamental question of accountability of where your tax dollars are going, if we're going to be good stewards of them. If there's no strong opposition of any kind ever, then those sort of things start to suffer, you know, and competition, again, brings out the best in us. And if we don't really have uh, competition from the other party, which is fine, um, then we should have competition from within this party, within the context of New York, for example, uh, by challenging incumbents and questioning where the money is going and what's happening. Um, I always joke, like, you know, I think... It, at some level, I think 51% is like the sort of the highest tax bracket that a New Yorker could be in and pay, which is like Sweden level, but you're not seeing Sweden level services out no, there if you walk around. You, so like, not. and that's not, I'm not saying that, you know, New Yorkers are liberal, I am, where everyone's happy to pay uh, their fair share and more, it, but you have to also be good stewards of people's money. You know what I think you are, uh, you're, you're similar to me on this, where the, a lot of the political conversations have uh, revolved around um, how much money you're going to put into this, how much money you're going to put into that. And the real conversation we have to have is, are the resources that are being dedicated to it actually delivering in a way that people are like, okay, like that that's money well spent. And, and that's completely missing from the convo. Like no one is saying like this money went in uh, and then we, we think that there were like uh, all of these great um, like accountability steps and like, you know, people feel like it, like it, it delivered uh, above the weight class of what was spent or any of that. Instead, it's just like you have these like 
increasingly incoherent like we spent this much on this and like oh spend more spend less and it's like look a lot of the 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 systems that we're struggling with and i use schools as an example it's like we're plowing a lot of money into some of these institutions and they're not delivering and then you're like oh you know what they need it's like more money and it's like well i'm not sure if putting more money in actually is like the key variable here it's like maybe in some cases but in other cases it's like the money's going in and you're just not getting what you want out of it uh, and so the, the goal, I think, for this next generation of government ought to be us trying to see to it that what government does is actually delivering at a higher level. Yeah, uh, like evidence-based policymaking. It's, evidence -based, it's policy not sexy, making. but it is like, the, you know, it's the gold standard across the world now. And outcomes-based, you know, monitoring, like these are all things that, you know, you, you should be thinking about when we're talking about what these are. I mean, New York has is the highest level of homelessness since the Great Depression. And you know, you can't open the newspaper on a, a every other day without seeing that some, you know, uh, you know, some semblance of corruption has occurred with a provider, a shelter that never actually provided services that like, you know, if you're not fixing that problem, you can pour shovel money into it. Yeah. We need both. That's the answer. You know, in some cases we just need both. But I, I'm all for massive investments in infrastructure, research and development and in, in, in sort of future focused things. But like, I'd also love to be able to build multiple subway lines with the same amount of money than just just one. Yeah. Because we've we're leaking, you know, money for lack of accountability. It's funny, Suraj, too. Another thing we have in common, I think, is you become a de facto uh, political reformer because of your interactions with the system. Um, and when when I talk to different groups of voters, so th there's one segment. Um, I'm going to call kind of apolitical, and I think a lot of Asian Americans fall in this camp naturally because, like, like uh, I don't know about your family, but my family was not talking about American politics or. or yeah, never were. Yeah, 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 until, yeah, I, yeah. until I forced, thrust it upon them. Pretty apolitical. Yeah, so apolitical. And so the, the challenge then is to try and make them political, which is typically then for them to get behind individual candidates who are Democrats or, or Republicans because that's what most candidates are. And then now with the forward party, I'm working on this political reform movement because I'm like, look, this duopoly, it's, it's disenfranchising a lot of people effectively. You have 90% of races that are non-competitive because of, uh, of uh, gerrymandering and, and, and other things. And so what's, what's funny is that I joke with folks too. It's like, look, like we're trying to do the hardest thing because politics is sort of exhausting. Um, you know, a lot of very rational people are like, look, it makes me upset, so like, let me not pay a lot of attention to it. So if you have the apolitical, the political, and then there's like this reform camp where it's like, no, it's not enough for you just to be like, you know, backing like candidate X or candidate Y. We actually need to fix the structures, the systems. And that ends up being harder case to convey to people very quickly. I think the fastest way to convey it to them is like this shit is not working uh, and when you say like this, this shit you mean like this political system this the, 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 the like the the entrenched interests the two-party system whatever you want to call it so I'm, I'm just sharing with you one of the experiences that, that I, i've had now uh that that i'm essentially like full-time reformer um I, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you uh, at all either yeah look i mean one thing that i think is curious is when given the opportunity via referendum, direct vote uh, across this country in Republican and Democratic states and blue ones and red ones, every single time voters have approved independent redistricting commissions over the state legislature being able to do it. So there are things in which, you know, you can you can see that wide swaths of voters from all parties want, you know, independent commissions so that we're not looking at these like safe, you know, out of touch districts. Seventy five percent of Americans want to overturn Citizens United. Right. As, as an example, 74 percent of Americans want term limits for members of Congress. Uh, you know, I'm sure 75 percent of Americans want independent uh, like redistricting. Commissions, oh, totally. Um, because uh, it's like having someone with a team jersey on like be the referee it makes no sense it's yep. like you're like get, get me a referee that's not from one of these teams please <laughs> which by the way could very well be a role for the forward party it's like look just let's just make us your secretaries of state because yeah. at least then <laughs> like we don't have a horse in the fight and look this isn't this is a this is about we, we should accept we should welcome this we should welcome the accountability we as uh potential office holders office holders democrats and republicans should welcome the accountability it'll make us better It'll increase trust in our institutions and our government again. Um, again, we are truly under attack right now.
um, in terms of liberal democracy, in terms of thought and, and you know, accountability and speech and, and all those things. And we've got to find a way to, to uh, course correct here so that we don't see wide swaths of Americans completely detached from or tired of the political process. This is, that's how authoritarianism holds. So your race now, you're back. Uh, you don't know what the lines are. <laughs> <laughs> Just another day in New York politics, you know? Uh, yeah, uh, you're gearing up for this primary that's going to be the entire race, really, because whoever wins that primary wins. Yeah, uh, I don't even in, think there's a Republican candidate signed up to be on the ballot. Yeah. So you win it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, how can people help? Well, look, I mean, um, the fundamentally, so there's three fundamental ways to help us, um, and, and we'd love to have it, which is um, time, money, and networks. Those are the three things I always say. You know, we're knocking on doors. We're making phone calls throughout the summer. It's going to be an August 23rd primary. So uh, please hit us up on the website. We're looking for volunteers at all times. Um, obviously, we're a 100% human-powered um, campaign. We take no corporate PAC money. I teach business ethics at NYU. I believe fundamentally that uh, you shouldn't take money from the very same corporations you regulate. So, um, you know, this is a grassroots-built thing. Anyone who can contribute, please do on our website. And then networks. This is New York City, uh, but also these are races of national implications. If you're looking for candidates um, that are pro-growth, pro-democracy, pro-science, I'm your guy. And uh, I want to sort of turn the page on the failed politics of now. Um, so if you're looking for people with experience outside that want to solve actual problems, uh, who want to reach across the aisle, frankly, to solve problems, that's what I'm into. Um, so, you know, we'd love to, to, to do events, fundraisers, whatever we can uh, anywhere in the country because these are national races. Um, uh, with those implications. Yeah, I mean, uh, needing to work across the aisle is going to become all the more important uh, in, in the days to come. Uh, what's your website, Suraj? It's www.surajpatel.nyc. That's S-U-R-A-J-P-A-T-E-L.nyc. Well, I can say, and people can sense this, I would love to see you in Congress, man. It would make me very happy and proud that someone like you can still rise up, defeat an incumbent, represent us, uh, in Congress and do great work. So go get them. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it.